Well, thank you so much for your very kind invitation to come and be with you on your special anniversary day. If you have a Bible, please do keep that passage open. It will be helpful as we work through it uh, together. Now, if I said to you uh, the words Morecambe and Wise, okay? And coming up for the Northeast, it's an easy one. Ant and Deck, okay? Uh, Lennon and McCartney, although, although Paul has always been cross that L comes before M because he wrote a lot of the songs and it always looks like John Lennon's got all the credit. But partners, partners, well, you are partners now with Jesus Christ. He says in the opening paragraph, uh, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, we're partners with God's dear son, bringing good news to people. And he's, he's rejoicing in that. And, and it's a real joy to know that we in Bedford are partnering with you up here in Newcastle because we believe in the same gospel and we want people to come to know the same Lord Jesus Christ. But as he, as he moves on, he wants to tell this church, and, and in a sense it's good on an anniversary Sunday, the key verse is verse 27. Where that little word only. Only. Uh, another translation put it like this whatever happens only given all that I've just told you stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel as you look back and give God thanks as you look forward into an unknown future whatever happens only whatever happens stand firm together striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That, that's his message to this church, that they are partnering with Jesus and they need to stand firm in the gospel. Now, he's explained in three key ideas from verse 12 to 26, the kind of things he means. And we're just going to explore the kind of, what is behind the word only? Uh, given all that I've said, well, what have you said? What is it this whatever happens what does that mean? And we're going to look at three key ideas that uh, he, he's explained in the passage. And the first one is this. In verse 12 to 14, whatever circumstantial setbacks you face, only, if circumstances set you back, keep standing firm in the gospel of Jesus. He's given an example of his own life. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me? Well, what has happened to him? Well, you know that saying, a missionary is only happy when they're getting on the next plane, the next train, or the next boat. He's been a Christian missionary. He's been free to go round what we would call it the Eastern Mediterranean. He's, he's told people about Jesus. Churches have been planted all over the place. He's one of the greatest preachers of the Christian gospel. But what has happened to him, he is now in prison. He's now chained. He's now stuck. And it looks such a setback. One of God's greatest spokesmen is now out of action. He's now, who knows how long, perhaps he'll never come out. We're going to see later, he talks about he's being on, on, on trial for his life. What a circumstantial setback that is. You imagine if Ken all of a sudden 
had a stroke and he couldn't speak anymore. And you go, oh no, what a disaster. It feels like God's key preacher has been knocked out of action. And the gospel is bound to suffer. Oh no. I follow a team from down south. They went 1-0 down in 9.4 seconds yesterday afternoon. And then they went 2-0 down. And I'm like, I'm not going to watch anymore. <laughs> this is terrible. It, it feels such a setback that you despair. Well, that's how it felt for them. People were watching on and going, where's God in this? Why has God allowed this to happen? Maybe that's your circumstance too. Maybe you were independent, but you've had to go into assisted living accommodation. Maybe even in a, a care home. Maybe you've, you, you, you've got circumstances which are really causing you a lot of anxiety. Maybe you've been unemployed. And you think, I don't know if I'm going to get another job. Even if you've got a job, you go, I don't know how I'm going to afford the bills. Electricity and gas have gone crazy. I'm talking to a young guy just a couple of weeks ago and said, my mortgage has gone up 700 pounds since December. Whatever circumstances you're in, at times you can feel like you're being pushed back, knocked back the whole time. And you begin to think, well, where is God in this? But what does he say? Brothers and sisters, know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It looks like a circumstantial setback, but God is still God. He's in control. He's got a better plan than we often realize. And what was the plan? Well, he tells us in verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, who's the imperial guard? Did you ever watch that uh, blockbuster film, Gladiator? Uh, the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard, they are the guys dressed in black who kill first and ask questions afterwards. They are the bodyguard of the, the Emperor. Uh, they don't take prisoners. Think Hitler's SS, very similar. Brutal, callous, hardened killers. And God wants them to hear about Jesus. So what does he do? He sends one of his best preachers into prison where eight hours at a shift, he's chained to a guard on the right and a guard on the left. And the poor men are stuck with this preacher Paul. Eight hours, you imagine. He's going to talk to them. What's he going to talk to them about? He's going to talk to them about God's son who was a Jew from Nazareth, who lived a perfect life, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And Paul is absolutely certain because he's known him and he's met him. He is alive from the dead. He is God's king. He is the savior of the world. He can forgive absolutely every evil we've ever done. He's going to tell these guys. And then the next shift comes on. Oh, hello. Hello. I've got you for eight hours. Here we go. And off they go again. And what do they do, these guys? Three shifts a day. Six guards every single day. What do they do? They go and tell the wags, don't they? They go out and think, oh, goodness me, I met this guy. I've never met a prisoner like him. He wouldn't stop talking. He kept talking about a man called Jesus, who he said was crucified, buried, and rose again. 
It's become known throughout the whole of these SS killers and all their wives and all their girlfriends and some of their kids that Jesus is the savior of the world. That he is in prison because he's simply telling people about Christ. God loves these people. So he puts one of his best where these men would hear about Jesus in a way that they would never have heard about him in any other way. Paul says, it looks like a setback, but it was not. And if you just turn over the page to the end of the uh, the letter, chapter 4, notice what he says at the end there, right at the very end. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What he's saying is, I'm not just talking to these men. Some of them have become Christian believers. There are now people right at the very heart of the empire in the emperor's own household who are now in God's family because they've heard about Jesus because I was in prison. Don't be discouraged when circumstances seem out of control to you but they are in God's control and he can use you to further the gospel wherever he puts you. One of my mates, after a very productive life uh, in in building work, he was... uh, a kind of a project manager, got made redundant in his late 50s. He became one of the guys, you know, who delivers cars up and down the country. You see those guys with those number plates in red and they just, he's traveling up and down the country. He said, Ray, I had more opportunity to talk to Jesus about Jesus to mates doing that job. If I'd never been made redundant, he, he told me about a particular guy who started coming to, he said, he would never have ever heard about Jesus otherwise. It looked like such a disaster. And after two or three years of delivering cars and talking to me, he got another job and he eventually finished his career. But for two or three years, you know, late 50-year-old, you've gone from a good job, good salary to feeling like useless. It looked such a setback, but it was not. The man who wrote the book, a man called Derek Prime, is a, a terrific preacher, lived up in Edinburgh, a big church there. In his 90s, his wife died, Derek went into an old folks home. He put a notice on a board saying, if you'd like to read the Bible with somebody, please come to room such and such on a Tuesday morning, whatever it was. In his 90s, it looked like such a, you know, okay, your career as a preacher is over, you're now in an old folks home, you've lost your wife, it couldn't get any sadder, could it? But Derek said, no, God has put me in this old folks home, and even in his 90s, He was leading people to believe in Jesus. It looked like a setback, but it was not. And in one sense, what Paul says here, you have to take yourself. What is, in one sense, feels like an imprisonment to you, trust God that he could use you where you are. Whatever circumstantial setback you experience, trust God. He will bring you across people If you weren't in those circumstances, they would never hear about Jesus. And who knows how many of them would come to believe. Who knows when we've been in heaven, we'll meet some of these guys who were once so far from God, who no one thought could ever become Christians. But God had other plans. God had higher plans, better plans. And if that happened to Paul then, it can happen to you now. And notice what he says. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having 
become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's like this. If Paul can speak to men dressed in black who are killers about Jesus, I can speak to my neighbor. I mean, I'm not going to die if I speak to my neighbor or my family. If Paul can speak to the SS, I can speak to the to the people in the office or on the, on the work. Who knows what opportunities God could give you? Most people reason like this. Well, if Paul can still preach Jesus in prison, I can still talk about Jesus when I'm free. So whatever circumstances that are setting you back at the moment, don't give in to fear. Don't let anxiety as it were, paralyze you and say, oh no, my life is spiraling out of control. I want you to know that what has happened to me really has served to advance the gospel. That's the first thing he says. But then he changes tack in verse uh, 15. He, He then says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What's this? Well, now he's looking at whatever examples of Christian selfishness that you, you receive. Circumstances can set you back, but you don't see it coming from the family of God but it sometimes can you, you know there's Christians and numpties aren't we you know we, we can really let the side down we can score our own goals and here are Christians scoring an own goal here are Christians acting selfishly and when that happens within the family of God it can be an extremely painful thing Just just notice what he's saying here. He is in prison and there are Christian preachers who are glad that he's in prison because it makes them look better. They're they're a bit more in the limelight because Paul's in the shadow. Did you get that? He's not talking about false teachers. He's not talking about heretics. He's not talking about other religions. He's talking about bony fide Christian preachers who are preaching Christ out of envy and in one sense they think they can do me some harm while I'm in prison let me tell you this if you're good with words and you've got a bible you can use it for almost any purpose if you're not careful you can imagine a Christian preacher saying well we know that the apostle Paul has been under God's blessing Yes, God has done great things through the Apostle Paul. Aren't we glad about that? But you know, he must have done something that has displeased our Heavenly Father. I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to say, but there must be something because he's now in prison. Maybe he's under some fatherly discipline. Maybe there's a secret sin. We, we don't know, but maybe there could be because otherwise surely the Apostle Paul would still be doing what he was doing before. You could easily spin a narrative around... Something has happened in Paul's life that has displeased our Heavenly Father. And maybe, who knows, but you know, you could easily, I mean, you could do that without Twitter and Facebook quite easily, let alone in the social media world in which we now live. It is so easy to make a case for Paul 
not being quite as faithful to God as he was. And therefore, he's ended up in prison. Can you imagine Christian preachers doing that? Well, let me tell you, of course you can. Because Christian preachers are forgiven sinners just like the rest of us, and we still sin. I mean, you know that phrase, you know, um, when you meet somebody, normally, what was it? You know, what's your, oh, I'm, I'm Ray. where are you from? Question number two. Question number three is always, especially if you're a bloke, what do you do? What do you do? You know what that question is? It's a pecking order question. Okay? It's not a genuine question, like they're interested in what you do. They want to know where they fit with you. Oh, I'm a doctor. Oh. Oh, no, I'm a, I'm a bus driver. Oh. You see, you, you, you can't help it. You're, you're kind of putting them, you know, that, that old, um, that's the, the, the two... Uh, John Cleese, I am upper class, and I look down on him, middle class, and I'm middle class, and I look up to him, and I look down, I'm working class. And I, you know, that, it's, it's that kind of question. What do you do is a status question. And when we get an answer, we kind of put ourselves up or down, depending on the answer. Now, here are a whole load of Christian ministers. Ken will tell you this. When you go to a Christian minister's conference, it's, it's a stupid question, what do you do? Because we're all Christian ministers, Okay. <laughs> So what's the question? How is it going in your church? Which is, what are the numbers looking like? And then you're, oh, well, we're actually really quite encouraged. You know, the church has doubled. We're now about 300. Oh, see. Oh, we're going through a tough time. We've had a half a load of people leave. We're down to the under 30. Oh. And what are we doing? We're playing that stupid game of self-centeredness. And trying to make ourselves either, oh, oh. It happens all the time. You ask Ken at Christian conferences. We, we can't almost help it. We are obsessed sometimes with making ourselves look good. And to make ourselves look good, we have to have someone else who doesn't look so good. And that's what the game they were playing. Can that live within a Christian heart? Well, of course it can. And when it happens... It can be extremely painful. I don't know if you've ever been at work and there's been a Christian at work. And they make it known that they're a Christian. And everybody else goes, oh no. They just let the side down the whole time. Maybe they tell inappropriate jokes. Maybe they've got a kind of racist attitudes about some things. Maybe they're just vain and conceited and proud and self-absorbed. I don't know what it But you know what it is? You go, oh, no. So all the good that you're done is being undone by that other person. And sometimes it's even more difficult than that, isn't it? One of my uh, friends, Derek, he's, he's died now, but his wife, Jan, uh, she, she was a Christian authoress, and uh, uh, they're married later in life, and they couldn't have children, so they adopted two Romanian orphans and these kids were you know they, they came from the most terrifying situation and they were only about uh, six and four and Jan developed an incurable um, cancer and it was a very very rare cancer and she was going to die very young in her 40s they just adopted these two children it was it was a heartbreaking thing so her husband decided that what they did they, they would they bought a bungalow and they did it up because Jan couldn't get up and downstairs. And he said, in the last year or so of her life, I'd love, I'd love to live in a place where it's comfortable for Jan and the children can spend as much time with her as possible because 
tragically, she's going to die young. And, and they bought this house, and I said, so how's it going? And, and he said to me, he said, Ray, it's been great, except that the decorator who came to do the, to do the job, he, he was just hopeless, Ray. And we had to have him back, time, and it just, it brought so much stress into our lives. And Ray, the tragic thing was he was a Christian. He was a Christian. And he was so bad at his job. Now, here's the thing. Derek and Jan were Christians, and they were very forbearing. But if they had not been Christians, and they had a Christian decorator who did a terrible job, would that have brought them closer to Jesus or further away? Well, you know the answer. Now, that is what Paul is experiencing. It can be really dispiriting when, when someone who you thought you could rely on and trust and was a you know, godly person just acts in a way that really hurts that's what Paul's experiencing. They are glad that he's in prison. Can you imagine that? Christian preachers who are glad that he's in prison. But notice what he says, verse 14. Uh, sorry, verse uh, uh, 18. What then? What does it matter, he says? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And once as he says this, what does it matter how I feel? It only matters that people hear and come to know Jesus. In one sense, Paul says, it's not about me and my reputation. It's not about what people think of me. Who cares? What I have my heavenly father's smile. I'm a son and a daughter. You're a daughter or a son of... You've been adopted into God's family. He's never going to change his mind. What does it matter what other people think about you? What does it matter if other Christians sometimes say silly things unkind things about you and you could get cross about it he said don't give in to that he's missed a big heart isn't he he says look if people are hearing about Jesus and coming to know Jesus what does it matter what people think about me in one sense we have to bring Christ into our petty littleness when we are prone to be self-centered and self-absorbed and, and perhaps even self-pitying Bring Jesus into the picture and think of all that he underwent for your sake. And that will just drive out your self-absorption. He who is at the very throne of God left it behind and was born into this sad, broken world. And he lived for you and he breathed for you and he died for you, and he was buried for you, and he rose again for you, and you were on his heart. Let his love drive out that sense of hurt when Christians let you down, and let his grace drive out that tendency to be number one and at the center of everything. And then, having mentioned Jesus, he goes on, in his longest section, verses 19 to 26, the third great whatever, the, the, great, the, the third great experience where he means only, only. And what is the third one? Well, whatever crisis of suffering, whatever circumstantial setbacks, whatever Christian selfishness, and finally, whatever crises of suffering lay ahead of you, stand firm in the gospel. Tomorrow, one of our sons has got to have a minor operation. He's very nervous about it. 
is, uh, he, he hates needles. He's got to have a general anesthetic. We're praying for him because for him, that is like, oh no. I don't know what you're facing. Maybe some medical procedure. Maybe some really stressful experience in your family, in your workplace. Or maybe it's this one. What is the one that he brings before us? Well, it's the ultimate crisis of suffering, isn't it? It is the fact that we're going to die. And Paul is on trial for his life. He's not just in prison. The outcome could be his execution. He's not sure what's going to happen. I don't know whether I'm going to live or whether I'm going to die. I want to have courage that now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. He knows that the trial is not going to be fair. People are going to say awful things. They're going to lie. They're going to cast aspersions. They're going to misrepresent. He doesn't know if the judges are going to be just or crooked. He knows the outcome, in one sense, could be an early death. He's asking that he would have courage, full courage, because it's a very nerve-wracking situation. But he knows this. Even if I'm on trial for my life, even if the trial is crooked, even if the judge is wicked, even if the sentence is death, Christ is still my saviour. And he's not just a saviour, as it were, of my life now. He's my saviour for all eternity. He has not just brought me the forgiveness of sins. He's brought me eternal life. In fact, he says this, I am hard pressed. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. For to me to live is Christ, to die is to gain. Because when I die, I come into the immediate presence of the risen Lord Jesus. One of the most tragic things I told you about being on the cruise was 1,800 people, all of whom are living for today. Because they cannot live for tomorrow. They've got no tomorrow. We met a couple who'd lost a child and said, well, it's taught us to live every day and enjoy it as much as we can. And I thought, you know, in a way that's right. I'm glad you appreciate it every day. But they had no future because they don't know Christ. They don't know that Christ does not, he died and buried, but he rose again. He's conquered our worst enemy. Even death has had the sting taken out of it. If we die, we gain Christ's immediate presence. What an incredible thing. Even in the worst of my suffering, what is the worst that can happen to me? I could die. And that is gain. That is gain. He is so confident that Christ has conquered the dead that he can say, I just can't wait to be in his presence. He's facing this difficult trial, this uncertain outcome. Please pray for me, he says. I, as, I, as I think about my circumstances and your prayers, I'm convinced that God will bring me through because there's still so much for me to do. I'm convinced of this. But nevertheless, even if I'm sentenced to death, I'm going to be with Christ. 
which is far better. What an incredible way to live your life, isn't it? As you age, most people can only look back. And they get the photograph albums out. And tears come in their eyes as they look back on things that are now so far away they can never go back. But the Christian can keep looking forward. He can keep looking to the time when he goes to be with Christ. He looks forward to the time when Christ will come back and and raise the dead. And remake this messed up broken world. The Christian has hope. So he says this. Whatever crisis you are facing, don't let it knock you out. Don't let it cause you to doubt. Don't let it stop you believing the gospel, living for the gospel, and speaking the gospel. Whatever these three may afflict you, and to be honest, you know, sooner or later they will, won't they? You you can't get through life without things knocking you backwards, without Christians letting you down, and without that ultimate threat of death hanging over. You can't get through life for long without those three coming to get you. But you can meet them with Christ. So he says, whatever happens, only, if these things happen to you individually or as a church, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then notice what he says. As you stand, not frightened in anything by your opponents. It has been granted to you for suffering for the sake of Christ. But don't be ashamed of that. Um, Newcastle are renowned for a fantastic fan base for the football team, aren't they? You know, they wear all the the strip and they cheer like mad. And any team that comes up uh, to to face Newcastle, you know, you're not just got the, you know, you've got this barrage of noise and sound. But you know this, for all the people wearing the strip, there are only 11 plus the substitutes who've got the bruises and the cuts And the pain of actually playing the game. You can wear the strip and cheer on. But it's only the people with the bruises and the cuts. That have actually been in the game. And it's so with us as Christians. We don't just wear the strip. When we live for Jesus. There are times when even our nearest and dearest. Will push back. Don't talk to me about this. I'm not interested. I don't want to know. And that hurts. But that is like a badge that you belong to Jesus. Now, we're not developing a kind of persecution victim complex here. But what he's saying is, don't let the setbacks make you feel a failure. The setbacks show that you're on his side. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And you're engaged in the same conflict that I'm into bringing a lovely Jesus to a dark world. Darkness hates the light. And you're a representative sometimes of the light. And sometimes you will find someone say something very nasty to you and you kind of feel, oh, I just should have kept my mouth shut and keep my head down and just live my own little Christian life and not worry. No, don't, don't give in to that, he says. That's a sign you belong to the light giver. 
and the light will shine in the darkness. And though the darkness hates the light, God's Holy Spirit can shine that light of the gospel of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ, into dark hearts and bring them into the light. So he says, and perhaps very appropriately on this anniversary Sunday, can I say to you, whatever happens in the coming years, stand firm together for the gospel of Jesus. Believe it, live it, speak it to others as God gives you the opportunity. This is a clear sign that you are going to be saved. For you're in the family of God experiencing the rich grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.